Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi, producer Jonah here, just letting you know that this episode contains discussion about sexual acts and imagery. Welcome to the Principle of Charity. I'm Lloyd Vogelman and I'm here with my cousin and buddy Emil Sherman. We're here to inject some generosity and curiosity back into our conversations. Principle of Charity tells us to seek the truth, not win the fight. In fact, we start the podcast asking each of our guests to present the most generous version of the other's viewpoint. Emil will then lead a conversation with the guests exploring what they really think. And later, I'll focus some more on the Principle of Charity itself. Our topic today is, is there good pornography or is it inherently demeaning to women? Emil, tell us a little bit more. Thanks, Lloyd. So is there good pornography or is it inherently demeaning to women? Pornography is probably the most pervasive but under-discussed topic out there. It's such a massive industry with so many people consuming porn. But unlike the latest Netflix series, for most people, it's not something we chat about that openly. Here are some stats to help you get your head around the size of this industry. 12% of all internet content is porn, with 35% of all internet downloads estimated to be porn-related. Porn sites receive more regular traffic than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined each month. MindGeek, which owns Pornhub and other massive sites, is one of the top three bandwidth-consuming companies in the world, the other two being Google and Netflix. The industry is estimated to be worth $97 billion worldwide. With the internet as the home of porn, there's uh, no real barrier to entry for young people to access porn. So, in fact, 64% of young people aged 13 to 24 actively seek out pornography weekly or more often. And a third of those porn users are female. So is pornography a healthy form of sexual expression, exploration, and enjoyment for all these people and a thriving industry of empowered performers? Or is pornography exploitative, demeaning, and ultimately destructive to our intimate relationships, even sometimes promoting violence against women? And do some of these themes also apply to our culture at large, where the line between pornography and sexualized imagery is often blurred? We're going to explore all of this and more with our exceptional guests. Who are they, Lloyd? Our two guests today, Emil, are Catherine Lumbee and Clive Hamilton. Uh, Catherine Lumbee is a professor of media at Macquarie University and a frequent media commentator across print, radio, and television. Catherine is also the author of six books, including Bad Girls, The Media, Sex, and Feminism. Clive, Clive Hamilton, is a professor of public ethics at Charles Sturt University in Canberra. Clive has held various visiting academic positions, including at Oxford and Yale. He was the executive director of the think tank, the Australian Institute. Clive is also a prolific author, and his opinions are published widely, including in the New York Times and the Scientific American. The thing that we are going to explore today is that both Catherine and Clive have definitely crossed swords in the media many times in the past. 
disagreeing with each other on whether porn is a place in a healthy sexual diet. But this is the first time they've had a profit conversation. But before we bring on the guests, I want to remind the audience that we will first be asking Catherine to present the most generous version of Clive's viewpoint, and then vice versa. After that, Emil will explore their real views. Emil, let's bring on the guests. Welcome, Kathy and Clive. Uh, let's start with you, Kathy. How would you articulate the strongest version of Clive's view that pornography is demeaning to women? Uh, I understand Clive's position as being certainly not a religiously conservative and not a radical feminist position which argues that all heterosexual sex is rape, but rather a position that is very concerned for women and young people and worries that pornography demeans and objectifies women in and of itself, that perhaps it constitutes a kind of hate speech, that pornography, um, and Clive acknowledges that there are many forms of pornography because pornography is not one thing, but that it is increasingly in the online age full of really horrific, sometimes very misogynistic, violent, demeaning sorts of behaviours and that people younger and younger are getting access to this and that this may influence in particular young male attitudes towards women and encourage the dehumanising and objectifying of women, which we know is a problem and I believe Clive is concerned about it being a problem um, as we know that we have an epidemic of domestic violence and sexual assault in this country that largely but not only affects women. Is that the most sympathetic uh, of the of the viewpoints which say that, you know, there's a problem with pornography, the one that you yeah, say that Clive's I, I, articulating? And I don't entirely disagree with the view. This is the thing. Um, I completely understand where it comes from. I think of all the people that I could be in a discussion with about this, Clive's the person who I... Um, probably understand or have more empathy and sympathy for his viewpoint than anyone else because I think it's coming from a man who's thought profoundly about ethics and I think a man who cares deeply about uh, the treatment of women and has thought deeply about the human condition and what does it mean to express human sexuality in a, in a way that, that uh, allows us all to be fully human. Before we get into the, uh, into the meat of it, um... Clive, and we're going to have plenty of chance for you to, you know, articulate your own position, you know, uh, absolutely fully. But how would you articulate the viewpoint that is, I guess, pro-pornography in the most general sense, but the most sympathetic viewpoint that you relate most strongly with? Well, rather than that, let me try to well do something that's very similar, but present uh, as I can the most generous version of Kathy's standpoint okay. uh, and like Kathy's gone back, obviously, in preparation for this to read what I've written. So have I. And it's been really interesting because I haven't written or really thought uh, in much depth about the, the question for quite a few years now. So let me see if I can present uh, a position that Kathy might agree with. <laughs> so um, I made a few notes here. So um, pornography, or uh, it's perhaps better described as erotica, is a legitimate and often helpful expression of the wide variety of human sexuality. And by showing a diversity of sexual practices, it reflects the diversity of real life, uh, which has often been denied, causing some people to feel ashamed of their preferences or their orientations. 
in particular women's sexual expression has been historically denied or distorted with uh, women ashamed to pursue the full expression of their sexual desires and pornography helps to normalise their desires and give permission to explore them. Suppression of pornography is in a long line of denying or suppressing and distorting sexuality as such, especially the obliteration of women's sexuality. So access to pornography is a further and necessary extension of the sexual revolution that began in the 60s, liberating sex from the fears and hang-ups of previous generations. Gay sexuality and various forms of non-mainstream sexual expression like BDSM and uh, even interracial sex are no longer stigmatised in the way they were and that can only be a good thing. Forms of sexual expression that society deems uh, acceptable, they change over time and across cultures. As the history of book bans and obscenity trials shows, decisions to suppress or ban obscene works are likely to become uh, outdated and they later appear to be narrow-minded and, and open to ridicule. And we now see those bans as products of taboos that are socially constructed and probably the expression of the power of one social group over, over others. Um, and the history of attempts to outlaw homosexuality is a, a good case in point. Erotica dates back to ancient civilizations, as we know. Some books and films um, that have been banned in the past, and even, you know, uh, paintings and sculptures, are now recognised what they truly are, that is, works of art. So attitudes change. Right and wrong are cultural constructs, and we ought not to allow one group's personal moral preferences to be imposed on others that don't share them. And when you ask porn users, adults, they, they say they obviously uh, approve and they say that uh, access to pornography actually enhances their sexual lives. For young people, where uh, the issue becomes more difficult, young people, um, for those young people whose desires and preferences deviate from the standard hetero norm, access to pornography has been liberating. Young gay and lesbian youths experiencing the anxiety and the fear of being different can discover from online porn that they're not outcasts who should be ashamed of their same-sex attraction. Some people, uh, like me, uh, worry about uh, what teenagers are exposed to online, but if teenagers explain, uh, obtain pleasure from looking at porn on the internet, then that's to be encouraged or at least accepted, isn't it? It's all part of learning about sex and sexuality. Of sure, there are some unsavoury genres of porn out there, but to find them, you really have to go looking for them because it's unlikely any teens would stumble upon them. And so mainstream porn, uh, which is what most kids see and are interested in, is what men and women do every day, and there's no reason, no good reason, to deny teenagers the pleasure and educational value that porn can bring to their sexual lives. Wow. Well, I'm sold. <laughs> okay, can you write my next book, Clive? <laughs> <laughs> wow. There you Clyde. go. On the charity barometer. How, how okay, well, I, I, I'm going to, the, the charity barometer, you, you're going to have to ask me, you know, what, what are some of the criteria for the charity barometer? And I'm going to go, well, one of the criteria for the charity barometer is do we do our best to understand 
what another person's argument is. Uh, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna give Clive a nine, and I'm gonna give Kathy an eight. One of the things about the principle of charity, which I think Kathy uh, and Clive did incredibly, was actually to show respect uh, to the opponent as as you know as, as a person. And uh, it's not the assumption that we're smarter than anyone else. And I, I sort of felt that in both in both presentations. So fantastic, fantastic <laughs> to both of you. Well, Brilliant. Thank you. You know, it does set up the stakes of the podcast as being one about conversation and generosity rather than combat. Let's stay with you, Kathy, um, and your argument, essentially, which which Clive's partly articulated. Where did you think that he largely encompassed your thoughts, and how would you further, you know, elaborate your your feelings? No, I think he captured it perfectly. That's why I made the joke about he should write my next book. <laughs> Not that I'm writing about pornography anymore, and Clive doesn't seem to be either, <laughs> right? But I, 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 but look, I'm not an advocate of pornography, and I know Clive was not saying I was at all, right? I, I recognise that he, I mean, he's really articulated and understood my argument, and and I really thank him for that. I think that one of Clive's concerns that I've detected in going back and reading his writing, and I have read pretty much everything Clive's written because, as I said formerly, I, I respect Clive's thoughts in many directions, is that at times, and I went back and found a piece you'd written for the Sydney Morning Herald, Clive, where you referred to me as a, a as a libertarian postmodern ironist or something. And and I, I'm, I'm sure, you know, it was just a, a rhetorical flourish. But like you, Clive, I take the sexual assault of women and men very, very seriously, and in fact, I've devoted three decades of my life majorly pro bono, working with Rape and Domestic Violence Services Australia. I've worked with the Rugby League for this reason. Um, I grew up as a working class girl in Newcastle. I witnessed domestic violence growing up, not for, not involving my father, I hasten to say, but in many other families. And I personally experienced sexual assault as a child. And so these are matters of grave concern to me. And it, they are matters of grave concern when it comes to, and I have two sons, one of whom's trans, who of course necessarily have been exposed to pornography on the internet. So what I want to unpack here and what I really would like to hear Clive's response to is that my approach with raising these two kids has been to talk openly and deeply to them about what misogyny looks like and but also about the importance of female agency and sexual pleasure. And so not this free... I guess I get the sense sometimes that Clive and other progressive thinkers think that my generation, the sort of so-called postmodernist generation, think anything goes, it's all fine, every, the kids are all right. And I don't think that at all, except that my approach would be to open conversations with them and engage them rather than to censor. So I'd be really interested to hear what Clive's mm. got to say about that because it's a, something I grapple with mm. morally mm. and ethically. Mm. Well, okay. Well, that's you, you feel like you've that that your position's been articulated enough, Cathy, uh, either between yourself or, or Clive, and let's well, move into Clive's yeah. thoughts. I thought Clive did really, really well. So yeah. thank you, Clive. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Emil, Emil, can I just just jump in there yeah. for one second because I'm feeling a little confused. Just Cathy, if you could just maybe elucidate your, your statement that you're not advocating porn. 
No. In in your in your book, uh, Bad Girls, um, mm. you know, there, there is a chapter entitled "Why Feminists Need Porn." Can you just sort of I'll explain that? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And, and look, it was probably a needlessly provocative title. Listen, I wrote that book in my mid thirties in New York. Right. So, you know, okay. one gives things silly titles at that age. Mm. Mm. But what I was saying is that at this. In the feminist movement, which I've been hugely part of and, you know, I think I was a feminist when I was born, there's been this return to the subject of pornography almost obsessively. It feels to me like a, if you call it like a blister on the skin of pornography, it's something mm-hmm. that's hot and sore to touch that we need to scratch. Right. And it seems to me that it's often the cart before the horse. But fundamentally, fundamentally, Kathy, as I understand it, you see and there is a legitimate view of seeing certain pornography as a healthy part of a sexual diet. I do. Certain pornography. Anything that is um, attempting to just use women as sexual currency purely or demean anyone on the basis of ability or race or any other things, I dislike and I have a problem with. But I think if we talk about what sexual desire looks like, is that we do objectify people during sex. Mm. Um, women do it, men do it. Depend, it doesn't matter who they're having, having sex with. And that um, pornography is a kind of an expression of, of that way that desire flows like water between rocks and it's hard to contain and that we fantasise, that that's part of our, our sexual humanity. Um, but it doesn't mean that we should hurt. I mean, for me, the main questions with sex or sexuality is, is it safe, consensual and ethical? Well, let's jump onto that in a bit after we've heard from Clive, because I think it is those lines of what what constitutes consent, when is something expressive and when is it actually objectification? So, Clive, what do you really think? Yeah, well, I think it's, I think consent is presented as a very easy concept. You know, you say yes or no, but Human beings are, are a lot more complicated than that. And, and so my, my main problem with the um, I'm put that kind of pro-porn people, let's say, which may or may not include Cathy, um, um, is the way in which, and you look at the sex industry, for example, um, 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 the way in which the, there are silos established and there's mainstream, acceptable, nice, clean, healthy porn over here, and there's some unpleasant, exploitative, violent, horrible stuff over there. And, you know, it's kind of we wish that horrible stuff weren't there, but we're just going to focus on the, on, on the good stuff. Now, my view is that uh, if, if men and women want to use, uh, you know, healthy, consensual porn as a way of enhancing their sexual lives alone or together, that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. I've never advocated uh, censorship of it or, or restriction um, of it. Uh, but um, you can't keep the silos separate. The darkness leaks in uh, to the mainstream. Uh, and that's what really concerns me. And the dark can be extremely dark indeed. Uh, violence against women, uh, all kinds of perverse uh, practices and fetishes, uh, simulated or real rapes, bestiality. I mean, these things aren't something over there. You don't have to go to the dark web to find this stuff. You just go, you know, searching sex sites and they will come up. And so what, um, 
what I'm getting at here is two things. One is amongst, let's begin with adults, the whole notion of uh, forbidden desires. Now, you know, certain desires may be for, forbidden uh, despite the mockers for very, very good reason, and yet uh, desire remains. And porn, the porn industry, actively cultivates forbidden desires. It wants people to break through the barriers that they uh, impose, that, that they carry around. I mean, that's what markets do, isn't it? I mean, markets um, try to persuade us to go places we don't want to go, and uh, for various reasons, and, and none more so with porn. And, of course, this, this, this really becomes troublesome when we think about young people. Now, often, and certainly I know in response to the reports that the Australia Institute did way back when, one on uh, young people and pornography and one on uh, sexualisation of children in advertising, people accused us uh, frequently um, of uh, wanting to deny uh, children, teenagers, let's say, uh, healthy uh, maturation of their sexual lives. But, you know, I think if we all think back to, to our own maturations, it's not, I mean, it, it's, it, it should be a step-by-step exploration of sexual possibilities when, you know, we can go further when we're comfortable with the stage that we've got to and if a partner is involved, that our partner is comfortable with and then go to the next stage if, you know, if there is another stage. But when we think about what uh, teenagers, and of course kids younger than teenagers, seven-year-olds are increasingly common in the schoolyard, these kids don't go through a maturation process where they're exposed to kind of normal, you know, man-on-woman sex, what your parents do in the bedroom, what you imagine, your pa- or, or playboy stuff, you know, which is so kind of out of date now it's trivial i mean they've got a thrust the whole gamut the the dark the light the nasty the exploitative bang in one go it might actually be their very first exposure mm. i mean it's not uncommon to hear of seven-year-olds in the playground innocent little kids you know some older boy typically will say oh look at this and they'll feel compelled to look at you know some act of i don't who knows what you know you, you can imagine mm. And this can be deeply, deeply traumatising for a child. Mm-hmm. It can completely distort their understanding of what sex and sexuality is and they may take years uh, to process it. But that's mm-hmm. what the porn industry does. That's what it is. And so we can't keep those silos separately and imagine that there's a kind of nice bit that happens over here that well-meaning, well-adjusted adults expose themselves to and there's the horrible stuff which you know we'd rather not think about. That's that's what disturbs me about the whole industry. Yeah. So how how do we show then, Clive, the disapproval? Is it more about creating a culture or uh, or encouraging a culture, I guess, that has that 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 doesn't approve of pornography, or is it about actually censoring pornography? It's already, I mean, there's already a lot of censorship in place. We can't get pornography, you know, um, in some sites, and it's not available on on Facebook and Tumblr and various sites. But what does the world look like that that you'd want to create? in terms of pulling the levers of incentives and laws and, and, and culture and norms? Oh, well, laws and culture are <laughs> radically different things. Very I different. Mean, culture, I mean, I, and I've written this, uh, you know, this has been, in a way been my principal argument. Having been, a, you know, a child of the 60s and, you know, 
I'm almost embarrassed to say this, but in uh, 1971, and two, no, two or three, Jim Cairns had this uh, kind of culture fest. What was it called? It was outside of Canberra at Brebbo, and it was kind of a mini Woodstock kind of event, and it was hot. It was the middle of summer, and there were thousands of young people out there, and we listened to music and took drugs and so and we walked around without any clothes on. I think, thank God, there weren't any cameras around then. <laughs> but, you know, I was out there doing that stuff. So, mm. you know, it was all part of the liberation and we were celebrating it, even though many, if many of us felt really awkward, we, we overcame that. So my problem is that that kind of mindset has, is deep within our societies in the West um, and it acts as an obstacle, this idea that, that, if you attempt to impose a restriction, even a social one, on any kind of expression of sexuality, whatever it may be, then this is harking back to, um, you know, the old bad old days of uh, of, of moral oppression and uh, Mrs. Whitehouse and the whole box and dice. And I, I've argued, in fact, I've written a book or so about it, the freedom paradox in particular, that We've allowed this sense of um, every, anything goes and any attempt to restrict what people want is, is in itself oppressive to get way out of control. And there really are things that are bad for human beings. You know, bestiality is not morally or psychologically good for human beings. And yet uh, you can go and see it on the internet, um, I imagine it's not too hard to go and find. Um, in fact, I'm, you know, the work that uh, I did with Michael Flood, fortunately I wasn't the one out there doing the kind of internet field work, but, you know, he was, and he wrote a brilliant description of what actually is uh, out there. That was 15 years ago. It's, it certainly hasn't got any better now. So I just think that we humans are complex, difficult um, uh, uh, creatures with tremendous kind of psychological depths and complexity, and and those depths and those anxieties and those neuroses and fears can are exploited, and a, a great deal of damage can be done by uh, not just allowing, but in, in a way encouraging or certainly enabling people uh, to go to those dark places. Not just not just kids, but adults too. So it sounds like it's the. It's the general societal encouragement that's an issue for you. I mean, how we specifically would go about changing, that's a complex thing. But there's a feeling that you've said that came out of the 70s feminism, a libertarian view that we need to just open the boundaries, you know, explode the, 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 the walls of shame. And that sort of liberation has meant yeah. that we're in a society where um, paradoxically, more people are exploited. Yes, you know, yes. in the name in the name of liberation. Yes, in the name, of, not necessarily feminism. Although fem feminism was, of course, a critical part of it, but the broader movement of um, sexual liberation. And so, what we advocated, Michael Flood and I, and I think I still hold this position, although I haven't really thought hard about it for a long time, was that there are certain kinds of porn that should be, as as far as we can, banned, excluded. Right. I mean, and what are they? Well. Um, we we just we we call them extreme and violent porn, um, and you know I could I've named a few of them bestiality, all kinds of sexual perversions like coprophilia, um, any kind of violence against women or, or indeed violence against men, 
uh, should be banned. I mean, you can't see them in the cinema. You can't see them on television. You can't see them in magazines. They're banned. We have laws banned. What about Clive, you know, on sites like Pornhub, which are some of the the, the biggest sites out there? You wouldn't call them extreme in that sense, but the sex that's portrayed feels like it's incredibly aggressive, it's incredibly demeaning, but yet, you know, the actors are presumably consenting to it and they're people who obviously derive some pleasure out of watching it or a number of people. Yeah, yeah. Where do you sit on that sort of I hard line on this. I think if, if sex involves violence, then it's wrong. Sorry. But um, what happens if it doesn't involve violence but is demeaning? Well, that too. I mean, you know, the, one of the genres, common genres is um, cum shots. So, you know, you've yeah. got six men ejaculating over a woman's face. I don't get this face thing, but, you know, it's very, very common. And it's yeah. clearly a way of demeaning a woman, turning her into not just an object but a kind of a vile object, um, so vile that you ejaculate on it. I mean, it's really, I mean, that tells us something very, very dark about mm. men, doesn't it? Mm. Uh, but it's common. And look, the woman, you know, in that, that video might be perfectly consenting, um, which is why I say consent is a much more difficult uh, concept than just, you know, someone agreeing to do something or mm. otherwise. And so, um, but then, then we get to children too, and, and I, we argue that we should do everything we can to prevent uh, children accessing uh, pornography. And you can have an argument about until when, Mm. 16, 17, whatever. Uh, And that's kind of all porn. And so that means, uh, look, and and we we should not mix up, as, as our critics always did, the desire to do something with the ability to do something. I mean, we desire to stop children, you know, buying alcohol, the fact that we don't stop them particularly well does not mean we should not should not should abandon the laws against kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kathy, Kathy, uh, mm. can I just follow on from Clive's statement? Robert Hughes has called you the courageous libertarian. I saw that in in and uh, when you hear Clive talking about banning, uh, you know, uh, pornography either on the violent side or anything, even in fact that's not violent, but that could be demeaning. Where do, where do you stand on this? Well, well, I just agreed. I just mentally agreed with most of what Clive said. I mean, I would disagree on a few points while understanding his perspective. So, I mean, firstly, yes, we agree that there is abhorrent pornography out there and anything that involves bestiality, violence, child pornography, um, so forth. I mean, I think the mechanisms for banning, which was Emil's original question, and this is where my law degree kicks in here, um, which was unfortunately a black letter law degree from Sydney University. So everyone, you know, please send your condolences that I had to suffer through that. But, um, you know, what what I know is that um, we have classification laws and all of these things which regulate mainstream media, but they've got nothing to do with the internet. The internet is transnational. People can change their ISP addresses, as Clive knows terribly well, you know, you can easily get around any kind of censorship restrictions. So so the idea of censoring the internet is a fantasy. You know, I'm not, but I'm with Clive. It doesn't mean we should not do everything we can within a nation-state basis and potentially in a global fora to um, restrict and, and, and stop the circulation of abhorrent material. And within that I would include things like racist hate, hate speech. 
Yeah, and there are other not- things as well, Kathy, that are not legal. They're not law forms. They're actually more societal norms or cultural approbation. There are, there are other ways to encourage or not encourage. Well, and I was come, going to that. And what I would be saying, but this is where I cared about the Safe Schools Program, you know, which was opposed by the Conservatives, you know, where we actually start talking to children in age-appropriate ways, obviously age-appropriate, about you know, everything from the existence of different sexualities and so on through to the existence of pornography. And, you know, Clive referred to, you know, seven-year-olds and playground. Well, when my oldest was eight years old, he some older kids in the playground, exactly as Clive described, told them about something called Red Chip, which is um, apparently like a, a, a porn version of YouTube. And strangely enough, as someone who's always described as a porn advocate, I don't watch pornography. I'm not interested in it. But um, my oldest and his best friend went off and used their father's laptop and their father happens to be a professor of law at a university. And then, of course, the laptop got got, um, corrupted by spam of all this porn because these kids had gone. So we all, the parents, had to get together and have this very earnest conversation. And I said, we actually just have to talk to them. And the, the other parents were great, actually. We have to talk to them about, you know, pornography and the fact that, 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 that some pornography just shows what some people do consensually and safely and some pornography, a lot of pornography, disturbingly, and, is, and Clive's right, um, I think it's increasingly disturbing, the amount of misogynist pornography, but not just pornography. I mean, look at the incel movement, which then, you know, which is hatred of women, absolutely openly displayed on the internet. It's not just pornography we have to worry about. There, there are forms of hate speech out there that really should concern us as, as progressive thinking people. And so I would say my response is education and my response is that we have to start difficult conversations young unfortunately we can put internet filters on and some of them work a bit but by the age of eight or nine kids know how to get around them kathy i'd like to bring the conversation back a bit to the areas where in a sense there's some disagreement or where that fine line is Mm. because i think in general i think there's some of the more extreme forms of pornography it's very hard to argue in favor of them and certainly doing whatever we can with laws and with just uh, education to make sure people and particularly young people um, understand what's happening when they're reading those images is key. But when we see more, I guess, you know, gentler forms of pornography or even ones that might seem demeaning but where there's no overt aggression, is there an argument that appeals to you that it is actually a positive force? It's actually a liberating force? There is something about exploring sexuality there that is valuable for the people who maybe are doing it, but certainly for the people who are, are watching it. They, they enjoy it and it's something that has a, has a good place for it in, in, in an open society. I've got, you know, quite a few gay male friends who are, who are married, right, in good marriages, happy, healthy marriages, and they will go out. And we, I go back to what Clive said before, and I know this is kind of strong, stern stuff for people to listen to, but, you know, okay, on porn you can see six men ejaculate on a woman's face. Well, I know some gay men who really like it when six men ejaculate on their face, right? And there are some women who like that. Like, 
I, I'm a pretty vanilla kind of girl, that kind of chick, right? I like to be in a monogamous relationship, which I am, and I've always been that way. But um, I get, I understand why Clive would look, would think, would look at that and go, that can be demeaning. Um, but there are people who, in, I did, wrote an article on group sex for the bulletin. And I went and attended a group, you know, there are people who are into group sex and they do it consensually, safely and ethically. And I went to a group sex party in Melbourne and it was fabulous in a way to me because their house was set up for group sex, right? And the woman worked in an ice cream factory and the guy worked in a car manufacturing factory. They were working class people in the outer suburbs of Melbourne. And what fascinated me was I was the only person at this party with my clothes on, being the journalist, and... And all the other people were naked and they were all having sex with each other. Um, no one drank alcohol or took drugs. That was one of the rules. And they were really into a whole range of sexual practices, which none of which I would want to participate in personally. But it was done safely and consensually and ethically. Well, that's where the question of you know, that, that liberal idea or libertarian idea of consent meets some of the more ideological views, isn't it? That, you know, there are some things in our society which we don't allow people to consent to. You can't consent to serious assault. You can't consent to selling your kidney, I don't think. You know, there are things as a society that we, we don't approve of, even if individuals may choose to consent to it. Is there an element of that, moving to you, Clive, for a second, um, you know, is that how you see some of the problems of consent, that you have a woman who might, or a man, but potentially a, a, a woman who's actually engaged in, in, in the industry, and they're saying they consent, but maybe they have economic choices that limit them. Maybe some of them really love it and enjoy it, but maybe some don't. How do we think about consent in that context? Well, certainly we need to think about it in a more complex way than, um, you know, are they, do they, did they say yes? Um, we already know that from the whole you know, um, yes means yes, no means no debate, that consent is a, is, is a, is a complex thing that needs, that it shouldn't be treated in a simple way, in the way that it does. And, you know, uh, if, if, a, if, if a woman yeah, consents to having six men ejaculate onto her face, then, you know, I think someone should really have work with her. <laughs> um, um, you know, not... Yeah. You see what I mean? I mean, it's you know, human beings are complex. I mean, our psychologies are difficult. Uh, we find ourselves in situations where we feel pressured to do all kinds of things or compelled to do all kinds of things. And so as a result of that, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm really concerned about the way in which our societies in the last, let's say, 50 years has come to regard sex and sexual pre uh, pleasure and sexual expression and the vital role of the porn industry in that and the way that the genres and styles of porn spill into the mainstream um, and and become uh, normalised. Mm. And so I, I'm, I'm particularly concerned about the brutalisation of sexual pleasure, which um, has become the, the, you know, we the liberation, sexual liberation and other movements of the time wanted to celebrate um, sex and sexuality. In fact, free expression of it was, was a, a vital component of liber, uh, lib liberation. But the porn industry and the enormous consumption of porn has led to 
a brutalization of sexual pleasure and the commodification of sexual desire, especially male uh, sexual desire, so that, you know, in a way, we've arrived at the kind of omega point of the sexual liberation movement, and we've actually lost the capacity to stand back and look at it and say, well, is this really the kind of free and healthy society that we imagined. Kathy, is is porn fundamentally a force for human flourishing? But there are some problems that we need to deal with, but overall. You know, I find myself agreeing with Clive more and more, right? Which is why this podcast is a good podcast. Look, I, I don't think porn is a force for good. I think it's an expression of the messy business of being human. Mm. I think, um, and I come back to, you know, again, this thing about, you know, a woman who wants six men to ejaculate on her face. Some women might, actually, Clive. Like, I'm not one of those chicks, but um, I'm not going to judge them. And I agree with you, consent is really constrained and complicated. You know, I mean, I find late capitalism really offensive, and I think the porn industry is definitely part of that. And, yes, all of late capitalism moves towards commodification of everything and everyone, and that's a really problematic thing. And you and I foundationally agree on that. I just don't know that there, is, that there aren't certain forms of porn which should be acceptable, but I also think, and I agree with you, that we need to educate young people and children young, and that means defying the conservatives on this ground and saying to them, we need to have open and honest conversations about this stuff and that we can have disagreements on where the boundaries are. I, I come from, you can hear my accent, I come from South Africa. It was a highly repressive society, not just in terms of race, but a highly repressive society uh, in, 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 its, in its policing dimensions, in its human rights violations, but equally in its censorship. So, and, you know, there, there's a society which was highly restricted and yet women were extremely objectified, probably you know, per capita, a society with one of the highest incidents of rape uh, on the planet. People have done a lot of work on this. And, and I think despite, you know, their initial views, uh, there seems to be a sense that porn exploded in the 1990s. And yet sex crimes have decreased over time. Now, of course, we can't put one variable and just say it's that. But, but I would, I'd really would like to hear from both of you, you know, what, what do the empirical studies say? I mean, the principle of charity in part is trying to get to the truth. One of the main areas that's been studied, and I'm sure, I should say I don't claim expertise and probably Kathy knows a lot more, but it's just very, very hard to establish linkages between uh, access to um, particularly violent porn and commission of violent acts. It, it is known that men who commit sexual violence do watch a lot of violent porn. But that doesn't, but as we know, correlation is not causation. It doesn't mean that watching violent porn uh, you know, makes them do more of it. Uh, but and, and, and sorry, Clive, equally the opposite. A, a, a lot of men are watching violent porn who don't commit sexual violence. I know, indeed. Uh, but you have to ask yourself, you know, you know, if a man is not committing any sexual violence but spends uh, a lot of time watching uh, women have violence done against them in a sexual mm, context, mm, then, mm, you know, mm. that man has a problem, mm. uh, a big problem. Um, mm-hmm. 
So, but but there are anecdotes which are significant. When we did our well at the Australian Institute, when we put out our report on the sexualization of children in advertising, um, mm. I wasn't an author of that. Two young women were the authors. They got accused of being perverts because you know they must look on children in in uh, DJs ads and see them in a sexual way, and therefore it's their problem, uh, not the way they're being actually presented. You know, when when through a, there was a legal case, we got sued for saying DJs uh, sexualizes children in their advertising, um, and uh, through a discovery process, we uncovered an email that um, the marketing company for DJs had sent to the photographer, uh, saying, "Can you make these girls?" And they were a ten-year-old girl and a twelve-year-old girl. That we had actually identified one ad in particular. Can you make these girls look more adult and sexy? So, you know, the marketing industry is not naive about this. But the point I wanted to make here is that in the course of that, which caused a, a massive uproar, and you, you, you wouldn't believe the disgusting emails that we received, particularly these young women mm. uh, who wrote the report, uh, received uh, from all kinds of really unpleasant men. Um, but I, I do remember a, a probation worker who worked in prisons telling me that pedophiles in prisons really like getting access to uh, children's clothing catalogues. They get mm. off on it. Mm. Uh, so you really have to take that bit of evidence seriously, mm. Um, mm. even if uh, the children's clothing catalogues aren't uh, encouraging them to go out and commit. Sure. Mm. The porn industry, since it's become disrupted by technology, like a lot of other industries, has meant that a lot of power has moved back into the hands of the performers, you know, with some of the new sites that have come up. Rather than, you know, big institutions controlling pornography, there are performers who go direct to consumer, essentially, on some of the social media platforms. And so there's a feeling in the things that I've read that they're very much empowered. They're empowered by what they're doing. They're empowered financially. Uh, they're empowered by the likes they're getting. Um, they're able to sell their services and they're marketing their services in terms of their images and the videos that they create very much directly to um, to the public. And it feels from their perspective or a lot of their perspective just like an incredibly empowering thing in the same way that I might be if I decide to write a song and get it out there and find that I could commercialise it. We'll start with you, Cathy. Where do you think the power lies? Is it clear that if someone says, I feel empowered, that they are empowered or that one can look with another lens and go, you know, essentially you're duped? Or is that patronising to think of somebody being duped by the subjective experience of being empowered? Yeah, it's one of the most difficult questions ever. Um, because I agree with Clive about, you know, we are in late capitalism in that stage and it's a very, I think it's a, it's a place and a time where we, um, we would like to think we have agency. I come back to this thing about the matrix, right? You know, I'd like to think I'm outside the matrix, but maybe I've taken the wrong pill, you know, like... There's no other pill since postmodernism. We're all in them. We're, 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 we're all inextricably in the matrix. I, w I want a yellow pill. Maybe you want the yellow pill. I want the yellow pill. But but the problem is that yes, I have argued strongly for women's agency because one of the things that I found I found you know from a young age very difficult is women being put on a pedestal, and that includes women not having sexual agency. And that's a very, you know, a Judeo-Christian view mm. 
of women and their bodies, which offended me from a young age, right? On the other hand, I understand, as Clive understands, that there is a commodification and capitalization, if you like, of sexuality and women's bodies in particular. So I would I would say that that's an almost impossible question to answer. I think I, I think we just have to work at agency. I, I think agency is something we never know if we have. And I think Clive has also raised really important questions in this conversation about the complexities of consent. And I completely agree with him on that. I've thought deeply about what consent means in my life. Um, so how do, how do we, any of us, really know what we're consenting to a lot of the time, ethically speaking? It does seem that it is quite a core question, which, which, which is the mm. question that people with different views turn around, which is if somebody feels and says very um, articulately that they feel empowered by an expression uh, whether it's just a more broad pornographication of culture where people are just a lot more open with their nudity uh, now on TikTok and other forms of social media. But when people feel empowered by these things, do we fundamentally trust their subjective experience and validate it? And, you know, Lloyd, when I was speaking with with your, your daughter who's in her 20s, she said the norm now is to feel like pornography is an incredibly empowering thing for women. Mm. You know, and, that, and, and so that subjective experience is something that we have to take very seriously. But, Clive, it's not the end of the story, is it? Not at all. I mean, uh, and I, you know, I've always had a problem with this pornography empowers women argument when you're talking about, for the most part, an industry that's controlled by men that displays men exercising power over women. Now, you just look at the language that's used. It's, you know, it's a language of domination and debasement. And not all porn is like that. There is some uh, porn uh, that uh, is kind of female-oriented and so on. But what worries me about this is that, again, coming back to younger people, I mean, what if an 18-year-old, uh, you're talking about women and uh, people taking taking control of their pornogra- pornographic experience as a producer of porn uh, away from the uh, industry itself, uh, the whole amateur porn uh, genre? But what does it mean for an 18-year-old girl, let's say, who, who posts videos of herself having sex? Oh, you know, normal ways, normal ways, all kinds of, I'll be pilloried for that, uh, all kinds of ways um, and, you know, does it several times and there it is forever. What if it's a 16-year-old who says she's 18 who posts very, very graphic uh, uh, clips of her having sex with whatever? Um, is that empowered? Is that is that agency or is that really uh, a very uh, dangerous manifestation of the kind of, uh, you know, uh, Kardashianization of youth culture, um, you know, which is a, an intense, an intense celebration, even a, a deification of the body and the body understood as the place of sexual pleasure. I mean, I find this such a, 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 a worrying distortion of what it means uh, to be a human being and of course you know the the 18 year old girl uh, who does that um you know of course they're warned over and over but it seems as though it's it's the cool thing to do among is she empowered kathy if she says she's empowered 
Um, see, I'm really torn, and this is why I say I have great respect for what Clive's concerned about, because it concerns me too. But having been a teenage girl, unlike Clive, uh, <laughs> I will say that the greatest concern when I was a teenage girl was the sense of being stripped of agency. Um, when I had a sexuality, you know, um, and which was not one which was highly endorsed in a working-class beach culture, let me tell you, because <laughs> I was skinny and brunette. Um, but um, I did want a way to, ex to experiment with and express my sexual agency, and I think it's influenced my feminism. Uh, I understand Clive's concerns, and I think that, that you know, he and I at both are deeply concerned about the complexity of consent. Um, and I think about this because I waded into the Bill Henson debate. And, in fact, I'm looking to the side at a, Bill, a large Bill Henson photo I have on my wall, and I'm a Bill Henson fan. And I think what Bill Henson does in his artwork, and if people who are listening don't know of Bill Henson, he photographs naked adolescents, often prepubescent or just postpubescent, male and female, and... What's interesting to me is he's capturing a state of liminality, a state in which one doesn't quite know. I believe that teenagers and children, of course, but teenagers particularly, should be free to learn about their sexual identities and to play with their sense of sexual agency. And I know that that's a confronting thing for adults and it's confronting when you have children but I err on the side of saying education, get, work with them to have the right values when they're working through this very complicated business of being human, and it is complicated. Oh, that's great, Cathy. I think it is. It, 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 the uncomfortableness of being in that place of liminality is really the, the trick, isn't it? Mm. How can we sit in that place and be vulnerable? Could you highlight maybe one issue in your life that has been extremely important to you where you've changed your mind? Maybe we can start with you, Kathy, first, and then we'll move to Clive. Okay, so I was in a marriage for 18 years, which ended three years ago, and um, my former partner's sister and her husband and her children are all very committed Christians. Right. Now, I was someone who had a real problem with religion mm. and um, despite the fact that pretty much all my male partners have been Jewish mm. um, and, they've, and, and, and they've been culturally Jewish, not religiously Jewish generally, mm. but I always had a kind of scathing opinion of religion mm. and saw it as people who had an imaginary friend in the sky or some rubbish, right? And by getting to know these people, who were like really dear to me and really important parts of my life. And also by listening to the Jewish partners I've had about the importance, I guess, of religion in a cultural sense, given the huge anti-Semitic forces we face, mm. I guess that has changed my view of religion. Yeah. And it's made me understand that, Religion is very important in many people's lives, the rituals and all of these things, and that it actually it's a, it can be an incredibly good force in the world. Mm. So I'm, I have dropped my prejudice and I'm so much more empathetic to religious people. 
so so one last question to you. You've been pretty charitable in, in this podcast, and I can hear sort of the charitable side of you. How do, how do you keep yourself charitable? What do, you, what do you have to do when you're not feeling charitable? Look at myself and ask the yeah. people who love me to give me a critique. I do that mm. quite often with my partner mm. and mm. with my friends and my kids. Mm. I tell them, mm. tell me what I'm doing wrong and how mm. can I fix it? Mm-hmm. Okay, beautiful. Clive, how about you? Can we start with maybe a big issue that was very key in your life where you feel you've got that wrong? Well, I wouldn't have thought of this except for Kathy staying to talk about it, but religion is a good one because uh, for decades I was, you know, not just a, I was a Dawkins-type atheist before Dawkins came along. You know, I used to um, grab students in the playground who were Christians and kind of harangue them on how silly they were. And then, uh, and then that that kind of uh, rationalist liberationist view was very much part of my political thinking and acting. Uh, you know, I talked about taking my clothes off out of Jim Jim Cairns's Confest, uh, that kind of thing, <laughs> and you know, total sexual liberation and all of this, and uh, and you know, very very down on Christians and Christianity. Um, you, know, you know, you can rehearse all of the arguments pretty easily. And then, and then, one day, completely out of the blue, I had this very, very profound religious experience, mm-hmm. uninvited, unanticipated, and it just knocked me out for years. Can you and, tell us what it was? No, but okay. you know, <laughs> it, it happened, and um, you know, I had to change all kinds of views. I didn't. I know. I stayed a person of the left, mm. but. I realised the complexity of the world, and the and the I had a deeper insight into uh, religion, religious experience, and what motivates people. And there's a kind of irony here, you know. Here in my office, this office is located uh, on the theology campus of Charles Sturt University, purely by accident because my appointment mm. there was a spare mm. office here and. Originally, I had one at ANU, and they said, oh, Clive, there's one at, over at the uh, Australian Centre for Christianity and Culture. And I'm surrounded by theologians. Mm. And they are mm. the most interesting, open-minded and loving colleagues that I've ever had. And so um, I regard that as a, as a great blessing, if I might use yeah. that word. <laughs> So, Clive, I'll, 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 I have to ask you this question, and it's a little bit of a plug for your last, for your, I think your most recent book, uh, which I think was called, is called The Hidden Hand, How the Chinese Communist Party is Reshaping the World. Do you think you could be charitable to the Chinese Communist Party? Oh, certainly not, uh, in no circumstances. I mean, it's a ruthless dictatorship that oppresses people and throws a million Uyghur people into concentration camps. How can you? It would be immoral to extend charity to the, the the ruthless leaders of the Chinese Communist Party and one can think of historical analogies there but I mean should you raise it because for me up until four years ago I was like everybody else pretty much on the left who's, who had this kind of uh, romantic hangover of Maoism and the great Chinese people and their revolution and and then I was confronted with a bunch of evidence thought actually no Look at what the Chinese Communist Party is and what it's doing. And I underwent a complete political transformation on that. And mm, boy, mm. have I lost a lot of friends as a result. Mm, you know, Hamilton's mm. become a racist. He's a sinophobe. Mm. 
you know, the CIA has got to him, all kinds of accusations made against me. I think, well, actually, all I've done is completely consistent with my fundamental principles, which is about mm. protection of human dignity, about mm. the rights of human beings to go about their lives, about democratic practice and, and mm. opposing authoritarian regimes. But there you go. Fantastic. Thanks so much to both of you. Can I just say that's been like fabulous. And Clive, can I say thank you for your generosity? And, you know, it's really nice actually to have a face to face conversation with you because we've never really talked. We've just crossed paths in print. Indeed. And it's great to see you as a person. <laughs> yeah, it, it's postage stamp size. Yeah, no, it's been uh, really interesting. I, I've appreciated and the, the you know the the spirit of generosity which uh, uh, Emil and Lloyd have set up for this discussion. Thanks so much to you both. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.